Father, you're so good to us as we just sang, um, that your goodness follows us, that you're faithful even when we are, as the word says, faithless. So we give you thanks for what you've done through your son, Jesus, on our behalf. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would encourage us by your word, that you would also reveal any ways in us that are not right, that you would seek us, that you would open our heart to believe your truth once again. And Lord, we remember people this morning as a hurricane is bearing down on New Orleans and Louisiana. We pray for people there they would take shelter, that they would be protected. And we are yet again reminded of the broken world that we live in because of sin. I pray that you would work in people's hearts even through what's about to happen there. Pray that the church would respond with hands and feet of Christ to love people in need. We pray for our world, what's going on across the globe, particularly in Afghanistan. We pray for our people there. We pray for the people of Afghanistan. We pray that you would relent. And we pray that we would realize that there is no hope in this world. That there is only hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ and your kingdom that is and is coming. And remind us afresh this morning our need for a Savior, our need for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've watched any TV shows over the last 20 years, you had, have had to stumble across the show American Idol. Is anybody still watching that show? I think it's still going. In 2002, it started, and it took a little break there, and it's back Anybody watch it? Don't, I, maybe you don't want to raise your hand. That's cool. Maybe you watch the spinoffs and, and different shows. But it's really a show that's meant to find musical talent, and it's found quite a bit of musical talent. The winners of the show, you think of Kelly Clarkson, you think of Carrie Underwood, Jennifer Hudson, and on and on and on. And the interesting, it's, it was an interesting show. Um, the process of the show goes like this. If you think you have a voice, then you come and you audition. And while there are a few checks and balances to the show, you can show up in Houston and you can audition for American Idol. There aren't many checks and balances, unlike some of the other shows that you might like where they're already cold out, people who can sing. And so there's the audition stage, and then people get to go to Hollywood, and then it is process of elimination to see who wins. I don't know if it's my six-inch sense of humor, but I love the audition part. I think it's fascinating. I think it's very entertaining or amusing, and maybe that's my sick sense of humor. There, I got it. But the auditions are fascinating because you see the people who can sing, and then you see the people who can't sing, and, except they don't know they can't sing. Mama hadn't told them they can't sing. Mama just said, you have a beautiful, angelic voice. You, go, go for it. And though the most interesting part of the show to me is that you have these self-confident people who have no self-awareness of their limitations, and then they meet Simon Cowell. 
And I'm just waiting for what Simon and Randy back in the day are going to say. And Randy's going to say something about, yo, dog, you can't sing. And Simon, no telling what's coming out of Simon's mouth. But people leave judged. So self-confidence coupled with no awareness that leads to a pretty severe judgment and reality for people. And I was, I was thinking about that this week as I think about how if we really pulled back the curtain, the spiritual curtain, and we saw a holy God who looks out at a world who has fallen into sin and all the things that this fallen world from the beginning has tried to do to make themselves right with God and their own self-confidence. You can start with Adam and Eve where they sinned against God and they put fig leaves upon themselves. You can go to Cain and see Cain's offering before God was unacceptable for what it was and how he brought it. And this is the challenge that all of us in a world that says, earn your keep, Work your way up the rungs of the ladder. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We apply those things in the world to our spiritual life. And the problem is, is that we don't have, as we learned the first week in our study of Romans, we don't have a righteousness of our own. We need God's righteousness to come to us, and yet we try to earn our keep. We try to work our way up the ladder, and what this text that we'll be in this morning shows us is that there is a failure, the failure of what I would call faux righteousness. Self-righteousness is a faux righteousness, and it's blinding. And when you think about the word self-righteous, what comes to mind? Maybe Christians amongst themselves think about self-righteousness as the person who points to the other person that's hypocritical, and so we point at each other in our legalism and our fence building and say, I've, you've got to maintain the same fence that I do. Maybe you think of that when you think of self-righteousness. Maybe you think of the world and what the world says is self-righteous. The world says that anybody who has a standard that's not mine, they're self-righteous. That's fun. And yet, when you come to the Scriptures... One of the primary ways, fundamental ways that the Scripture talks about self-righteousness, you see it with Jesus and the Pharisees, it is this. That somehow, some way, I can be right with God on my own merit and the things that I do, that I can work my way to God. That fundamentally is self-righteousness. Let me ask you. Do you talk a good game to people, and yet behind the scenes, you struggle with the same sins that other people, that you're calling out in other people? The hypocrisy of that? Are there any spiritual rabbit foots in your life that you're holding on to to say, well, this will do it. This thing makes me right with God, or God somehow sees me differently because of this rabbit foot deal. When we come to Romans 2 this morning, we see Paul turn from this last chapter, chapter 1, from the self-reliant Gentiles who were heathens, who were hedonist, to the Jews. Now, here's the thing. If, If you're in the church in Rome, in the book of Romans, if you're in this church, there's Gentiles and there's Jews. And if you're sitting there listening to the reading of Romans chapter 1 and you're a Jew, you know what you're thinking? That's right. Darn right, those Gentiles, they're heathens. Amen. Preach it, Paul. 
And then you, switch the fl- you flip the switch when you get to chapter 2, and guess what? Paul is turning to primarily the Jew, the religious Jew, the self-righteous Jew, and he says, you're guilty too. You're just as guilty as the heathen in chapter 1. And go read the list in chapter 1. It's pretty significant. You're just as guilty. So what we're going to see in chapter 2 is the self-righteous religious. We're chapter 1, we saw the heathen and all the things the heathen participated in that made them guilty before God. And so you're going to see bad news from last week getting worse, like the Delta variant, right? It's going to get worse before it gets better, but there's good news that's coming. Listen, there's a number of truths in this text about self-righteousness, the hypocrisy of self-righteousness, the false security of self-righteousness, and then the blindness of self-righteousness. So let's look at it this morning. Chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. And then we're just going to parse that text out and apply it and walk through chapter 2. Look along in God's Word there with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's on the screen. There's Bibles in the pew. I think it's page 940 if you need a reference point. So chapter 2. God's word says this, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things, the same things that we're talking about from chapter one. So he's looking primarily at the moralist or the Jewish person. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice those things, chapter 1. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? That's hypocrisy. That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So a lot about judgment here. Verse 6. He will render each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor of immortality and will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey the unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. This is not works-based salvation. This is God's judgment on deeds. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God is, shows no partiality. He's impartial. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentile, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jew, will be judged by the law. For if it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles do what they do not have in the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, you're keeping up, They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even 
Excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Much about judgment coming to not only the heathen in chapter 1, but the religious hypocrite in chapter 2, primarily looking at the Jew. Here's your point. See, God's impartial judgment falls not only on the self-reliant heathen, but chapter 2, it also falls on the self-righteous hypocrite. And I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 2. I want to hone in a bit on this truth. Where the religious are guilty too. Where their righteousness are like, the Bible would say, filthy rags before a holy God. Look back at the beginning of chapter 2. He's speaking of those who pass judgment. But what does he say? He says, you do the very same things. You tell other people that it's wrong and it's sinful to do these things, but in secret you're doing the same things yourself. So I think he's speaking to the self-righteous Jew who's outwardly doing all the things that they're supposed to do, but really they're doing the same things. And what's the result? The result is just like chapter 1. There's judgment for that because God is impartial. And he's judging one each according to their deeds. Again, this is not works-based salvation, but when you see, if you look all the way through the Bible, in the end, the believer by faith who trusts in Jesus, there is evidence to faith. And the person who doesn't know Christ, there is evidence to the contrary. So God, in the end, will judge the unrighteous. And there's also, if you are looking at Scripture, a judgment of the righteous, which has nothing to do with salvation. But he's looking at evidence. So God's judgment falls on the hypocrite as well. I don't know about you and and your story and how you came to know Christ, but I grew up in the church. I knew about Jesus. I could explain the gospel forward and backwards. I didn't know Jesus. And I remember going to college, and God started to work on my heart and convict me of my sin. But my solution was not fall at the feet of Jesus and trust in his finished work. That was not my first response. My first response when God began to work was, I'm going to clean myself up. And so for about six months, I remember thinking, I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop doing X, Y, and Z. I'm going to go from chapter one effectively to this heathen, this prodigal son, to chapter two effectively is what I did. And and I tried all these ways in which I could be right, that I could be better, that I could be good, and it was miserable. If I had a preference, I would go back to the first one, but it got me to a place in which I thought, no way can any of this attain what it's trying to attain in my life, and that brought me to Christ. I don't know what that's like in your life, but here's a stopping point as we've gotten to the middle of chapter 2, one thing is very clear in the book of Romans. There is none righteous, not even one. And we're getting to that, but it's really clear at this point. There's really bad news, and the bad news got worse. Because I've explained to you that the Jew might have been sitting there in chapter 1 and pointing at the Gentile. In chapter 2, if Paul's reading this to the church, the Gentile who's come out of being the heathen and the hedonist might look and go, yeah, 
They are self-righteous, all these Jews in the church, but they also might do something else. They also might say this, maybe they're self-righteous, but they're good. Like, they do all these things, and none of those things, what Paul's saying is none of those things can attain God's standard. So if, if, if they're in trouble, I'm really in trouble. And so the bad news has gotten worse in that case. But here's what the gospel, the beauty of the gospel does. It kills religion. It kills religiosity. The idea of climbing a ladder, you're never going to get there if you're a religious Jew or a heathen Gentile. You're never going to get there on your own. You don't have a righteousness of your own. You have to have Christ's righteousness. His righteousness cover you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But here's what the hypocrisy game does. Just if you're wondering if you've experienced this as an unbeliever or a believer, frankly, as you think about the life that you live, hypocrisy and self-righteousness, there's a never-ending comparison game, because that's what's going on here, right? There's a never-ending comparison game in your life. If you're pursuing a self-righteous means to know God and serve God, because you're always looking at the other person and going, am I better than them? It makes me feel better that I'm better than them. I'm, maybe I'm more superior to them, and maybe it's a, even a false sense of security. Not only is there a, the comparison game with other people a big part of it, there's an impression game, isn't there? You're always trying to impress people. This is Jesus' problem with the Pharisee. The clown show of the Pharisees out on, in public, praying in public. And Jesus, what does he do to them? Like, pray in secret. Why do you need, right? There's a story of a 12-year-old boy who went to the orthodontist for the first time. And anytime you go to the dentist, anytime you go to the orthodontist and you need braces, right? It's a kind of scary thing. And so he's got his intake forms and he's filling the intake forms out. And he comes to the place on there where the doctor, I guess, just wants to know a little bit more about who he is. He said, what are your hobbies? And the boy writes down in his hobbies, swimming and flossing. <laughs> Liar. Nobody like, does anybody like the floss? I don't like the floss. Those new ones are good. The boy's like, why is he doing that? He wants to impress the orthodontist to go, hey, I like the floss. You little liar. But that's what hypocrisy, that's what it does. It makes you always in this place where you're trying to impress someone, or you're trying to compare yourself to someone else. It's weighty. And it may make you feel better about yourself. It may make you feel superior because you're going to break the curve, God's curve, and it may even make you feel this false sense of security. But it's bankrupt. You're building your house on the sand. And you got to rebuild it. And it washes away. And it washes away. And it washes away. I want to show you a couple more things here that feed religious self-righteousness. Because we need to hear this. We need to hear more about self-righteousness because it creeps into our lives. Even if we know Jesus and we've trusted in Jesus, it creeps into our lives. See, religion loves stained glass windows, one guy said. 
So look at verse 17 through 29. Let's follow along with me and you see this. I want you, as I read, I want you to think about the false sense of security that you see here, all right? That self-righteousness could give in these Jews. There's really three of them that I find. And so be thinking about how these Jews here might be trusting in something other than Christ alone, or grace alone, as I read. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and I know and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are, what's the next word? Sure. That you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You got four more questions coming. While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Think about the words of Jesus, adultery in your heart. You who abhor, apparently, idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor it by breaking the law. That would have struck the Jew right square in the head. You break the law. They cared about the law. For as it is written, the name of God, because of what you, all these things you've done, is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. And if the law is not enough, look at verse 25. He gives the example of circumcision, which would have predated the law and what they trusted. And for circumcision, need... <clears throat> Indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is, this is hypothetical, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision, his uncircumcision as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision that breaks the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, this is important, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but the Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Three things. Three false senses of security that Paul points out that do not save. And here are the three. Their heritage. You see there in verse 17, but if you call yourself a what? A Jew. They were proud of their heritage. They even believed that because they were covenant people of God and God had been patient with them and forbearing with them, that it would excuse any of their unbelief. And so they were prided themselves spiritually in their heritage. And then you see the law itself. What does the law give? Knowledge. Right? That's what it says, verse 18. And know his will. Verse 19. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. So knowledge. That's another false security that the Jew, according to Paul, had in the law. That they knew the law so well. They had this false security because they were the people of God. And they knew God's law. And they had knowledge of God that they were okay. And then last, ceremony. So heritage, they were Jews. Knowledge, the law. Ceremony, circumcision is the example that Paul gives here. Circumcision, you see it for the first time in the Bible and after God had made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. 
So before the law comes, before God gives the law, he gives them an outward sign, which is circumcision, an outward sign that they are part of the covenant people of God. And it was an act of obedience that they would take on the eighth day, the boys, and they would circumcise them. Dads, y'all can talk to your little kids. I know it's fifth Sunday. You can talk to them later. But circumcision was an outward sign of covenant relationship with God. And so the Jews in this day would have not only trusted in the law and their heritage, but this outward sign of circumcision. And Paul just cuts right through it. If I could give an example as it relates to outward and inward. So, ladies, I'm going I'm to give this to you. So, wedding rings. Every woman in here wants their husbands, or their wives, to wear an outward symbol, an outward sign of their marriage, and the marriage vows that they took. My wife wants me to wear a wedding ring. And she also wants me to do what? Honor what that sign represents. She wants me and expects me to be faithful and honor our marriage, the covenant we made before God. She wants both of those things. So even if you lose your wedding ring in a river or from working out, she wants a ring and she wants you to be faithful. But let me give you this, and you have to pick one, ladies. Would you rather... Would you rather your husband not wear his wedding ring, but be absolutely faithful to you? Or would you want him to wear the wedding ring, the outward symbol, and be unfaithful? Those are the only two. I know you want the other one, but they're the only two examples you got. Which one you want? It's not the sign. It's not the symbol. You want him to be faithful. And this is what Paul is saying to the Jews who are self-righteous. You're just putting your trust in the symbol, in the sign. But the inward reality to that symbol is faithfulness to me and belief and trust in me. You can apply that if you want to to the law, but they were trusting in all these outward things to change their heart, to save them as it were. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The real Jew is the one who is circumcised in the heart, changed in the heart. So circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. A lot of application for the Christian in this, isn't there? I want you to think about your heritage. Adults, kids, I want you to think about how good it is if you have it. I want you to think about your parents, adults. Think about their godly heritage that they left to you. And many in the room don't have that. And many of the room are saying, I'm going to start that. I want that for my children. And that is good. Kids, it is an incredible thing that your mom and dad bring you to church, hear God's word, know him, even when after church they hang around a little long, okay? Like today. It is a good and right thing for you to have a heritage of faith and it's right and advantageous for you like the Jew. But it does not make you right with God. Your heritage does not make you right with God. You can't go before a holy God and say, my mom is a Christian. My dad is a Christian. Or live in a Christianese culture and say, I've always been a Christian. 
because I live in, in Magnolia. Everybody's Christian. See, God judges the heart, and he does it on the basis of his son. And you don't have a righteousness through your heritage that you possess, that he has to give you his son's righteousness apart from you. So kids, listen up. It's great. It's great that you have a mom and dad that teach you the truth. But you stand before God all by yourself. And when he says to you, how do you know me? The answer is through the son, not through mom and dad. So heritage is good, but it doesn't make us right before God. Knowledge, it is good to know God, it is good to know his word. This is what we're doing right now, learning and growing. This is what we do in an institute class. We want you to know God through his word. That's important. It is a good thing to know him, and yet knowledge alone does not save you. It does not make you right before God. This is my testimony growing up in the church, hearing the gospel. I could intellectually up here explain the gospel to you probably from the age of five all the way to 20. I had a knowledge of God, but I hadn't trusted in him, in his son. And so knowledge alone of God's law, God's word, does not make me right with God. It is good. And neither is ceremony. Ceremony, when we think about New Testament, in the Old Testament, it was circumcision. There was the law. There were all kinds of practices. There are signs and symbols in the New Testament as well. Baptism, for example, in the Lord's Supper. Baptism is an outward sign of something that's happened inwardly. It's meant to represent new life that we have in Christ. But baptism in and of itself does not save you. So if you've been sprinkled as a baby or you've been baptized as an adult, even through immersion, which is the right way, right? We're Baptist here. It does not save you. And yet, oftentimes, we look toward baptism to say, I was baptized. I'm saved because I was baptized as an infant or an adult or anywhere in between. It is good, it is right, but it is not salvific. And taking communion. Taking communion is something we do to remember. It's a sign and a symbol to remember what Christ has done for us. And as we remember Christ and reflect on our own life, there is sustaining grace that God certainly uses in that ordinance. And it is good, and it will be good today for us to remember. But there is nothing in that Welch's juice or that really terrible piece of bread that we're taking right now. We're changing, by the way, in a couple weeks. We're going to do a little different. But there's nothing inherent in that that will save you. Here's my thought. One of the greatest threats, one of the greatest things that Satan uses, and it really doesn't even take any ongoing work for him, one of the biggest things that he uses is the deception to convince people that they are saved because of external things, whether it's knowledge, whether it's heritage, or whether it is ceremony. And Paul's message to these Jews is, you're putting your security and your hope in the wrong things. 
There's one place that your hope belongs. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And sometimes as a believer, it's hard to know when you're struggling with these false senses of security, whether it's, man, I read my Bible every day, or I do these things, so I'm good, or I'm more pleasing to God than my Christian brother or sister. And so we've got to think about ways in which we can cultivate, continue to cultivate a posture of humility, a posture that says, I still need Jesus. And so I would encourage you to consider things that often come hard for us. Prayer. See, prayer gets us way downwind of ourselves, and it makes us dependent on God, especially if we're not just praying for the things that we want to happen. We're praying that God would do work in our hearts. Confession. Practicing confession before you fall asleep at night or when you get up. to Say, God, what is it that I need to confess to you? What way is within me that is not right? That's a way in which you posture yourself and cultivate a posture of humility rather than pride because self-righteousness builds up the ego to where we can worship God. The beauty for me of worship when I come on Sunday morning is I got to remember and I sing it and I leave singing it the glory of God and who he is and, and how I fall short, that is glorious. It puts Christ at the center if it is God-glorifying, Christ-centered worship. So have a tune in your heart through your week. See, worse, though, than hypocrisy, even, even this false sense of security, is there a, there's a blinding that self-righteousness does in our hearts. I want you to see this. In verses 4 and 5. There's a blindness toward our own desperate need of God's mercy. You see, when you can figure it all out yourself, and you can come up with your own solutions, if you will, to your own sin problems, you don't need God. But look at what verse 4 says. It says to the hypocritical false sense of security, moralist, Jew, religious, self-righteous. Here's what you've forgotten, if this is what you struggle with. You've forgotten, do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, and here it is, that it's God's kindness, not his anger, not his I'm going to get you, his kindness, his kindness that leads you to repentance. God's kindness. Not your working really hard. So God, not you and me. It's not you and me. Not our kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his. And it's his kindness. Not his wrath. Not his hellfire brimstone. His kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But if you're Struggle with self-righteousness, it blinds you to your desperate need of God's mercy. There's a great example of this in the scriptures, and it is palatable. Everything I've said today, it's great when you're in a passage and you can go to one other passage and see basically Romans 2 wrapped in another passage. And that's what we have today, Luke chapter 18. This is Jesus 
speaking to the crowd, Luke 18. And it's the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he's telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want you to see, as I read, I want you to notice the blindness and the self-righteousness that you see here in contrast with the humble of heart, the one who's in desperate need. Great contrast here. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's Romans 2. And treated others with contempt because that's the fruit of self-righteousness. You treat others lesser. Just notice how thick the language is here and imagine yourself in this. Two men went up to the temple and pray to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Remember the tax collector in Scripture? He's the lowest of low. He's worse than even the sexually immoral of his day because he's sold himself out to the Romans and he's taking taxes, the burden of taxes from his own people. He's, it's treason, effectively. The worst of the worst. The Pharisee is the best of the best, right? The Pharisee standing by himself, which is exactly what happens with self-righteousness. You are standing by yourself. He prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Wow. It's pretty thick. A little self-righteousness there, maybe? Just a little bit? Chapter 2. Here's what I do, God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So that's his resume. He's presenting to God in prayer how great he is and how bad the tax collector is and all the things he does to merit God's favor. He's wonderful. He thinks he's wonderful. He's like the American Idol candidate. Audition. That's That's the picture. But the tax collector standing far off. It's a great picture of where we are apart from Christ. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The weight of his sin was so that he couldn't lift up his eyes. But beat his breast. It's a way of confession and repentance and sadness in that culture. Saying, God, not me. Look at the tax collector. I fast. I do this. I give tithes. Tax collector. God, be merciful to me, sinner. Two very, very different postures. So what's God's, Jesus' conclusion? I tell you, this man, this tax collector, who's humbled himself, went down to his house justified. You know what the idea of justification is? It's to be declared righteous, to be declared right before God because he realized he was a sinner in need of a Savior and repented for his sins. That's his posture. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's interesting, isn't it? The guy who was high and mighty is actually low. He's lost, and the lowly is exalted because he's repentant, and he knows his need. 
He's aware of his great need for God's mercy. And that's the beautiful truth in salvation, is that we need God's grace. And it's true in sanctification, too. As you live your life, you need God's grace. He didn't just save you so that you can do the rest. As a matter of fact, verse 29 says you need the Spirit of God working in your life. You know, Jim opened this morning with the idea of Jesus taking our burdens that are heavy. There is no heavier burden than trying in your own self-righteousness to be right with God. You try and you try and you try and it does not work. It will not work. It is the house built on the sand instead of the rock. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, and man, you've been trying. You've been trying with all your might and all your ways to be right with God. Maybe you were like me as a collegian who decided I'm going to do right and that's going to be good enough. That is exhausting. And Jesus would say to you, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He takes your place that you might know him and brings freedom to know him and serve him. There's also this heavy burden if you know Jesus and yet you struggle. And this is just honest stuff. Like we struggle with legalism. We struggle with creating our own laws to lift up our own laws instead of his. And so this is just real talk for all of us. And just erecting it, it's a heavy burden to try to live according to the law or our own laws for righteousness. And if you're trying to keep up the mirage of a self-righteousness, that's a heavy weight. And beyond that, not many people want to be around people that do that. They feel that. They know that, kind of like the contempt that is spoken of here in the way that you treat each other. And so I hope this morning is helpful for you. I hope it's helpful for you to see just the blindness of self-righteousness and the way in which it shows up in our lives and yet the glorious truth that Christ frees us from the burden of our self-righteousness. And I would simply, as we close today, ask you a question. Are you done? Are you done? Are you done trying? Are you done trying to appease or please a holy God with your own works, with the own things that you try to bring to him? And are you ready to start trusting? Are you ready to start trusting him? And for some of you, that means just coming to know Christ and stop, stopping this cycle of trying to make yourself right with God, coming in salvation to him, that Christ, the good news of Jesus is that he is at the center, his son is at the center, and he brings a righteousness that you don't have, and he makes you right before a holy God, that you might know him and have relationship with him. You're not living your life to try to do enough to please him because his kindness and his goodness leads us to repentance. That's real relationship. That's not a relationship based in fear. That's real relationship with your father, as we sang about before.
So are you done? Are you done trying? And are you ready to start trusting? Let me pray. Father, thank you for another week of the stark reality of how our sin separates us from you. And we can look out and we can see a world full of all kinds of crazy sin. And we can say, you're going to judge that. And yet often we need to look at our own hearts and the own ways in which we sin against you, even in our righteous acts, quote-unquote righteous acts. So thank you for demonstrating to us and showing us in your word that our religious effort can't earn your favor any more than the person out there who sins in ways that we can't even describe in a public setting. So humble us before your throne and before your son to receive and to trust in the finished work of Christ. For some, for the first time, for some that need to know you, that they might be free from the burden and the guilt of sin, and for others to live in that freedom, to live having the grace to let other people be, to not bind other people with their own rules, their own means, but to live in grace before you and before men. In Jesus' name, amen.